0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, meet boot trash, the malware that executes before your OS does, the hard questions you need to ask your security appliance vendor before you buy one, and Project Zero finds a flaw in FireEye's hardware appliances. Plus some great questions from our audience, a big roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. everyone and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 245 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on December 17th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our two fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, two fine sponsors, three fine sponsors, and iX Systems. We'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, that's powered by the incredible scale engine, over at ScaleEngine.com. That's how we power our live streams and all of our file distribution. You should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the teacher, and the tech, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan.
1: Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching.
0: Alan, happy holidays to you, and uh, with a little holiday cheer, you should show off the shirt again. This has almost become a bit now, but this is a great shirt. This is a really good one. It says, for those listening, life's too short for, there's an emoji there, software. It's the poo emoji. For the poo emoji software, this best use of the emoji ever, and it just happened here on the TextNet program. Who saw that coming,
1: <laughs> Alan? I, I don't know. All the people that saw it last time, I wore the shirt, but yeah.
0: oh, did I? Oh, well, this is the first time I've ever seen it. I think the reason is because you're up a little higher in the frame now, so I could read it.
1: I'm sure we showed it off last time, but I love
0: not. it. I love the use of the emoji That's, on Alan Jude's chest. That's a great place for it, especially that particular one. <laughs> Uh, All right. Well, we have actually a pretty big show today. A lot of news to get into, stuff that we've been wanting to cover now for a little bit. This first story comes from researchers at FireEye who have spotted something pretty interesting. What do we have, Mr. Jude?
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, So researchers at FireEye have spotted a new advanced persistent threat group that they've decided to call FIN1 instead of, you know, I think they're at APT28 so far in their regular tracking. But these guys are very specifically a financial threat group. Okay. Or at least that's what FireEye has decided to call them and start their numbering over again for those. Uh, but they're targeting payment card data uh, with a sophisticated new malware that uh, FireEye has dubbed boot trash, but I've seen other um, research into it call it nemesis. Okay. Uh, but basically, what makes it unique is it executes before your operating system actually boots. Ah. So we've heard of rootkits, where it's malware that gets like into the kernel as a driver or something and, and can basically make the kernel not realize that it's there. So like when you look at your list of processes that are running or, or try to find the files, they're just not there. Uh, because code in the malware in the kernel is making them just not show up. But this one is what's called a bootkit, because it's actually loading before your operating system and, in, and interacting with your operating system that way. Hmm. So, this malware only works against machines where the disk is uh, MBR formatted, where it has a master boot record. Still fairly common. uh, Which is still fairly common, especially in XP and before, um, but is turning out of favor now because of the limitations. The biggest one being that uh, partition can't be bigger than two terabytes. And now that people have disks bigger than two terabytes, they've moved on. Uh, The other problem with MBR is you can only have four partitions, although. uh, one of those partition or some of those partitions, could be extended partitions, which basically just contained a table to let you have four partitions inside that one oh, partition. Oh yeah, I'm familiar with that one. And all kinds of ridiculousness, uh, crazy hacks we did to be able to get across that limitation. Um, whereas now we've replaced it with GPT or the grid partition table, and this one uh, allows you to have like 128 partitions. So and you know it supports up to like 16 etabytes or something like that. Uh, which is much more common now, uh, and you know, Windows 7 or Vista maybe, I forget. So, uh, Vista or 7 and forward uh, support it, and uh, I think there's a way to support it on Windows XP, but you couldn't boot off of it in Windows XP. But they did add, eventually add support so that you could have like a that three sort terabyte of like, external familiar. hard drive. Yeah, yep. Well, because I remember so a student having uh, bought like a new three terabyte hard drive or something. And was trying to copy images to it. But then it was GPT partitioned and the version of XP we had at the college was frozen at an older version and didn't have the patch or whatever. And Yeah, it, my recollection like, would be coming
0: up with like an external USB drive is what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, well, it basically kind of it came it.
1: GPT formatted, I think. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe it came MBR for compatibility and we switched it to GPT. So either way, she had <laughs> yeah. to copy it. She wanted to copy a <laughs> lot of files. Yeah. And we had to first get all the data off of it, so we could reformat it with the opposite partition type that it had, uh, and uh, put it on mm-hmm. that way. Huh. Anyway, boot trash. Uh, so if this boot trash malware detects GPT, it just exits and does nothing.
0: Oh, okay, interesting. So uh, how how the hell is it booting and loading before the operating system? I don't. That is it is it in the bootloader is it in the mbr's bootloader section and what's, ca- what's executing of, it is it well, a firmware thing
1: know, right so so the mbr uh, the master boot record that has your partition table only has 512 bytes for boot code so it doesn't live there it actually lives in the okay. next part uh, so the way booting works is your bios loads up and it reads that 512 bytes of code in the mbr which mostly now just copies code from somewhere else and then runs that because 512 bytes of code is not very much. Uh, so then there's what's called the volume boot record. So this is a chunk of space at the beginning of each of the partitions defined in the MBR. Mm. Uh, and this is also this is basically how dual booting works is you could have different boot code for each of those partitions so that you can just pick one and boot from it. Okay. Uh, so th- it... Backs up what was originally in that VBR, the volume boot record, to a different location on the disk, and then overwrites it with its uh boot code. So it finds some free space uh usually between the partitions or at the end of the disk. You know, usually uh there's a little bit of space left over where, you know, the number of cylinders or sectors didn't round out to a nice number. So there's like, you know, 104 kilobytes of free space at the end of the disk or something. Um mm-hmm. uh, it finds that space uh, and creates and writes into it, raw, a, a virtual file system. Uh, and wow. that's where it keeps the malware, the actual drivers and so on. Nice. And so they don't show up in any file system scan because you don't normally go and try to read that 104 kilobytes of empty space that, you know, on a fresh hard drive should always be zero and never be touched. Yeah. Um, So um, And then, yeah, additional files and resources that won't fit there end up getting encoded as uh, blobs and then hidden in the registry. Uh, So they pick like a registry hive that looks, you know, harmless and actually encode a bunch of files into it. And if they ever need those files to run, they just pull them out of there, decode them, and run them, and they never actually exist on your hard drive. So, you know, a virus scan of the disk is never going to find these. Right, of course. Uh,
0: The virus scanner is always going to be limited to what is in the purview of the operating system.
1: Right. And because it's accessing the file system through the kernel, a rootkit or a bootkit can hide those files, even if they were actually there. Because, you know, the virus scanner does the system call to say, hey, let me see what's in this directory. Just like all the other
0: applications on the system do.
1: Right. And uh, code running in the kernel could be like, I've decided I won't want you to see this file, so I'm going to just not tell you it exists. Right. Right, so how your system actually boots up in this case. Uh, during a normal boot, uh, the BIOS loads the MBR, the MBR loads the VBR, which uh, then you know, contains a bit of code that will like, actually start the operating system. Uh, however, during the hijacked boot process with this virus, the regular MBR will ins- now load boot trash from the VBR space because basically we read the VBR, moved it somewhere else, and wrote the virus into the VBR. So the MBR code loads the virus code and runs it. Hmm. Now that code, uh, the Nemesis boot kit, um, goes into that custom file system it found at the end of the, the blank space at the end of the drive or right. just between two partitions or whatever. Right, right, right. Uh, and loads up a bunch of its code out of there. Hmm. Uh, then it passes control to the original boot sector. So the real VBR that it's moved somewhere else, after it loads its, the virus and stuff into memory, it Loads up the, the original VBR right, and runs that.
0: So your expected OS starts booting none the wiser. Yeah.
1: So then your your regular OS ends up starting. Right. Uh, the bootkit intercepts several system interrupts to assist with the injection of the primary nemesis components from that virtual file system into the OS. So the bootkit hijacks the BIOS interrupt uh, responsible for miscellaneous system services and patches. Uh, that associate with the interrupt vector table, which is the part at the very beginning of memory. And basically it intercepts uh, memory queries once the uh, operating system gains control of the computer. The bootkit then passes control to the uh, original VBR to let it continue. Uh, While the operating system is being loaded, the bootkit is also intercepting and scanning the operating system loader memory for specific instructions that transfer the CPU from real mode to protected mode. Ah. This allows the bootkit to patch the interrupt descriptor table uh, each time the CPU changes from real mode to protected mode. Right, So every time you switch, the CPU is going to overwrite this table over here. And so the virus can detect that and then update its patch to that so that all the every time it goes to a certain code path, it will always get intercepted and go into the virus. Impressive. Uh, so this allows the boot code to detect and intercept specific points of the operating system loader execution and inject the nemesis components... Uh, from that hidden file system in as part of the kernel. So now you've loaded the Windows kernel, but you've replaced certain parts of it with the virus. Hmm. Uh, so it basically dynamically replaces bits of your kernel code with its own code. Uh, and so there's no way to detect that this is happening because the only way to do anything on the computer is ask the kernel, and the kernel right. is going to lie because it's infected. Yeah. So they have a bunch of great diagrams, like the one that you're just showing there, yeah you can see the mVR goes into the the boot kit, which is the virus, which then loads the the which reads from the vi- uh, the virtual file system that it created in that unallocated space then it finds the original boot co- uh vBR boot code runs that which then runs the actual operating system and it basically patches the kernel as you load it and replaces it with bad stuff this was really
0: uh I- the motivation behind doing this is got to be, I mean, do you, do you, is your take on it state-sponsored? I mean, the, the level of sophistication to something like this, the dynamic patching the, of the kernel, uh, the creating the virtual file system and moving the expected VBR code to that virtual file system. To me, it, I, I look at this and I think somebody with an incredible amount of research and skills had time to put this
1: together, and it wasn't one or two people. Exactly. There's, there is a reason why they're calling this Fin1. No, it's, a, it's a serious APT group that's really out there to steal the credit cards and not get caught.
0: Well, one of the things I heard speculated, and I, I have not read uh, this whole FireEye piece, but one of the things mm-hmm. I
1: heard speculated was the mafia, which just seemed like crap to me. It seemed like, well, which mafia? The Russian mafia. Yes, it's, they've been stealing money from everything. You know, we, they were best one of the groups we thought was behind the Target one too, right? I don't know. They didn't say.
0: I didn't. I didn't Who know doesn't want mafia. money? I guess so. You think you think a group. So I guess it doesn't necessarily have to be a state. You think it could be just a group, uh, like a enterprising group of individuals,
1: for just the purpose of infecting point of sale systems to steal credit cards. (laughs) Mafia makes more sense than a government.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. If you're stealing money. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you're a government, you can just print money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of different. Well, there's
0: a lot of ways. (laughs) Taxes. Uh, Yeah. Okay. So maybe it is a mafia group. But whoever is doing it, I mean, incredible sophistication, Alan. And uh, FireEye, I mean, once again, another great write-up once they find something. you got to give them that, right? A lot of things about them. Any other thoughts on this story?
1: Uh, not much, but uh, it's definitely worth checking out more if you're interested in it. And it's uh, basically a new type of uh, virus that no one's ever seen before. Do they go so. into which operating systems are vulnerable to it? Or did they, they uh, keep it... Basically, anything with MBR because
0: it's... Then it would just be a matter of writing to the kernel for whatever OS you want to target.
1: Right. So I think it's mostly targeting XP because that's what almost all point-of-sale systems are. Right. Uh, Even a couple that aren't, you know, maybe they're a newer version of Windows, but probably not that likely. Yeah, okay. You know, basically, they're after probably a few specific places or uh, specific models just because they targeted MBR specifically. Yeah. Uh, all right, um let's take a second here. I
0: want to tell you about IX Systems. Mm-hmm. iXSystems.com slash TechSnap, where you can go to learn more and support the TechSnap program. Just before we got started on the show, I was trying to, for like 15 minutes, I was trying to get Alan to come up with a great way for me to really nail some sort of clever storage solution. And at the end of the day, it just kept coming back to build a free NAS. This is the way to do it. And, you know, IX Systems really has a great free NAS mini that... I think, has gotten slicker and slicker as time has gone on. They have it now with this, those Atom server processors in there, so it's very powerful, oh, but uh, low very, power.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know. you know
0: what I mean? Like, powerful in terms of like compute, but low power in terms of consumption, which is really nice,
1: and also keeps heat and the... temperature, or heat and noise down. Yeah, so that was the one that always people complained about, of, you know, oh, I'm just going to use some old machine I have laying around. It's like, oh, it's going to use a lot of power and going to be noisy. Uh, this solves both those problems. The other problems you have with an older machine is it's going to be slow and not going to have you know, encryption offload or virtualization offload. These new server class atoms have both of them. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? And so they start with the free NAS Mini,
0: and then their solutions go all the way up to the biggest baddest systems and solutions you have ever seen built for the enterprise, go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and find a solution designed to make open source products rock. They have an incredible staff and team that knows this stuff in and out, involved with this stuff in the open source community. They have a great sales approach, and they have a really good support staff. Go check them out at ixsystems.com slash techsnap. I wish I knew about them, and if I was still in consulting, this would be my secret weapon when I go to a client and say, let's start buying from them. It's going to change the experience. When I first bought my first iX Systems product, I went into it a little skeptical. I'll be honest, they wanted me to contact sales a little bit earlier in the process than I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought, well, okay, that doesn't seem appropriate. I'm pretty aware and savvy of what I want. I would prefer not to. But I did it just as an experiment. This is before they were a sponsor. And uh, I didn't really you know, have a lot of other outwardly experiences with them other than just at conferences. And I have to tell you what, that pre-sales meeting that we had ended up being a huge, huge thing for me because I ended up saving money. Uh, I ended up building a better product that we are still today using here at the JB1 studios to power our back end storage infrastructure. And if it wasn't for that pre-sales call, I would have gone and purchased something that didn't really fit my needs. Uh, and so today I still remember going back and going, they just saved me money and got me a better product. And it's like that throughout the entire enterprise. ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. I love it.
1: Also, yeah, there's a reason they won an award for, you know, fantastic customers.
0: They just got that great award. You can check it out on their blog. And there's a free NAS
1: logo design contest going on. Yes. Uh, so they're looking to refresh the logo for the free NAS now that it, you know, it's uh, all fancy and so on. And uh, it's mostly, I think, because FreeNAS 10 is coming soon. Uh, but so they have a contest and they have. Everything you need, you know, this is the most organized logo design contest I've seen in a (laughs) while. Uh, Like if you scroll down a bit there, they have a list of things to kind of get you started and think about it. List of places where they're going to use it so you can kind of think of what it's got to look like. They want to use it right in the GUI in the web interface for the FreeNAS. They want to use it on the website. They want to be able to print it on flyers. They want to email it to people. You know, they want to make t-shirts out of it. Here's the color palette, also very clever. This is great. With all the details. So like, you know. The Pantone numbers. and They're, they're used <laughs> to working with professional designers and stuff. So this they is, have you know everything you need. Y- you should send a link to this to Ange.
0: Seriously. Be like, <laughs> hey, take a few notes from this. This is a great idea. This is yep. really good. They are clever. They got their stuff together. And maybe you have a chance out there. I know we do have some designers in the audience. Mm-hmm. Also, we're looking for designers to refresh the TechSnap look. So email mm-hmm. Angela at JupiterBroadcasting.com if you think you might want to take a crack at these frames we use. You know, mm-hmm. for our show.
1: But yes, uh, the FreeNAS logo contest, uh, the winner will get $750 or a FreeNAS Mini. Yeah.
0: And of course, we mentioned this because IX Systems, folks behind FreeNAS, it's really cool. So uh, go check them out, IXSystems.com slash techs now. Okay, Alan, let's shift gears and go into this guide you found for, I, I like this, a decision maker's guide to buying security appliances and
1: gateways. Yes. Uh, so this one mostly spoke to me because of our interview on BSD Now yesterday. Oh, yeah. Uh, so if you, uh, which that's out now. So if you haven't, go download that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but on BSD Now, we interviewed uh, Paul Doadek, who works at a company that makes a security appliance based on BSD. Uh, but, and also it fits in with our next story coming up as well. Nice. But anyway, so this is a decision maker's guide of what questions you should ask yourself before you go buy some random security appliance. You know, with the prevalence of targeted, you know, APT style threats and the business risk of data breaches reaching the board level and the market mm. for security appliances is as hot as it's ever been, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's trying to sell these things. Mm-hmm. You know, many organizations feel the need to beef up their security, and vendors of security appliances offer a plethora of, you know, content inspection or email security or anti-APT appliances, all with you know fancy glossy marketing brochures full of impressive sounding claims and so on but how do you decide which one you actually should buy? So this article provides a bit of a guide to help you shop for an appliance, and you know, that might actually be worth the number of zeros on the price tag. Nice. So uh, their biggest point was that most security appliances are Linux-based, or open source-based anyway, uh, and use a large number of open source libraries to parse untrusted data streams that sure. they're inspecting. right? It turns out, even though you're paying all this money for this, Usually, they're just using some libraries that you could have cobbled together yourself with maybe some proprietary stuff to make it slightly better. But these libraries, along with the proprietary code added by the vendor, form the attack service for the appliance, right? That is the code that is exposed to an outside attacker looking to attack that appliance. Mm -hmm. Um, As we'll see in our next story, basically, if this appliance is going to sit there and inspect everything coming in in your network those all happen to also be attacks against the appliance. Sure, that makes sense. And so you have to be careful with that. And the other thing is that uh, all of these security appliances require a privileged position on your network, right? In order to be able to intercept traffic and be able to block it, or even just to monitor it, they basically need to be able to see everything and possibly modify it as it goes through. And as soon as you have... You know, that's what every attacker really wants is the ability <laughs> to spy on everything going into and out of your network. Yeah, really. And the ability to modify it. it yeah. So yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, they're basically it is the holy grail of your network, so you really gotta ask your question about the security of the appliance. You know, we've also uh, talked about how often the uh your monitoring device
0: or your monitoring appliance or your mm-hmm. NAGIO server, how actually critical that is if it has firewall rules into all of these devices monitoring. Exactly. kind of the same concept here. Exactly. Only in this one it's even more this one's so,
1: it's like It's literally a wiretap on your Yes, exactly. But that means that vulnerabilities within the security appliance itself give an attacker a particularly privileged position and applies the security of the appliance itself is rather important and basically impacts the security of your entire network. Uh, So, importantly, they gave five questions to ask the vendor of the security appliance before you buy it. The first one is, what third party libraries interact directly with the incoming data and what are the processes uh, that the vendor has to react to security issues published in these libraries. Right? Uh, when we get to the next story we'll see one of the libraries is like uh, libpng or something to be able to <laughs> uh, check if the, the file going through has any malicious stuff in it. Right? It's like well Every once in a while, there's a vulnerability in libpng. Or or uh, there was one just
0: this year in the JPEG library. I don't yeah. know if you remember, but yeah.
1: Right. Uh, and so how quickly is that going to get fixed? And how long is my security appliance going to have this known zero-day vulnerability mm-hmm. sitting on it? Mm-hmm. And that all that someone has to do is email a JPEG to somebody at our company and it's going to get scanned and explode and what you security. What you are, what you are
0: touching on is when a vendor used to tell me, oh, we ship it with hardened Linux. In my mind, what I would hear was, we ship it with unpatched Linux. We yeah. shipped it. We ship it with Linux, you know, kernel two dot two. Yeah, two four <laughs> maybe we've now.
1: Deleted a bunch of packages from. Yeah,
0: yeah, and then our- but they're still using a ton of core libraries that are. If you got access to the box, their entire premise for these appliances is that you'll never get console access. That's their whole premise. And then if you get console access, it's it's a it's nightmare because you
1: emailed the JPEG to it.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> a big compromise. Uh,
1: yeah. Are these third-party libraries sandboxed in a sandbox that's recognized as industry standard, right? Is it something you didn't just roll your own? Uh, the sandbox Google uses in Chrome and Adobe uses in Acrobat, or Acrobat Reader are open source and have undergone a lot of scrutiny. Uh, so are the isolation features of KVM and QMU, although QMU has had a bunch of issues itself yep, yep. as well, right? And KVM and Zen. Um, are any third-party libraries running outside of that sandbox? Or some internal virtualization environment? If so, why? And what's the timeline to actually fix this? You know, Because oftentimes the, some library will run outside the sandbox because it doesn't work in the sandbox. And the question is, is that a temporary fix or do you plan to just leave it like that forever? <laughs> and if they do, that kind of gives you a sign that they're really not looking at addressing that Absolutely. issue. Absolutely. Right? Uh, third question, how much of the proprietary code runs... Uh, which directly interacts with incoming data runs outside that sandbox. Because, you know, sure, they might sandbox the open source library, but they probably assume all their code is pristine and awesome and of never going to have a problem. Of course. Uh, meanwhile, it's like, well, if you're writing it, you can definitely write it to work within si- in the sandbox, right? Mm. And then they also say, to what extent has this code that you wrote, the vendor wrote, actually been security reviewed by anyone that doesn't work at the vendor?
0: Right. Yeah, is it just oh, is is it your own internal team checking it, kind of a thing? Yeah, that's not necessarily you know, how well sufficient
1: for uh, for a border device like that, exactly. especially
0: for an expensive one. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, is the vendor willing to provide a hard disk image for basic assessment by a third party security consultancy? All right, if I am going to spend all this money on your device, like you know, some of these cost like a hundred thousand dollars or something. You think they would do that? Depends. Uh, I don't know. You know, it's like, could can you give me a hardware a hard drive image of this so I could you know pay somebody 10 grand to look at it first and see if there's anything obviously wrong with it before I pay for it? I
0: feel like your best compromise, if it's a device like this, when they're expensive, they'll often let you demo it for a bit. And then you have yeah. you hire you hire somebody to come in and audit it or you have your own...
1: Sometimes the license doesn't let you do that, though. Mm. Uh, so they say, uh, also, misconfigure permissions that allow privilege escalation happen all too often. So basic permission locked in should have happened on the appliance. But it doesn't always happen. Yeah. It's like, oh, these companies make Linux appliances and don't understand basic Linux yeah. stuff.
0: I've seen it where uh, you know, they'll, have, they'll install all their stuff to opt and then they'll chmod at 777 and that's, they're good to go. That's part of their installation process. <laughs> yeah. um,
1: in the case of a breach at your company, so this is the company that the purchaser works at, uh, what is the process through which your forensics team can acquire memory images and hard drive images from the appliance mm. so that we can maybe see why it didn't detect it or how it was compromised or whatever? uh you know and not to mention uh in the case of a breach at the vendor what information could the attacker get about your appliance or your network or your security you know how much does the appliance report back to the vendor and you know how much information does the vendor have and does the vendor have some special secret support login to access your device remotely that the attacker might get access to if they hack the vendor or a backdoor uh,
0: like we keep hearing about over yeah, and over again yeah
1: exactly or uh you know updates for the appliance are signed with some secret key by the vendor and if someone were to break in, would they be able to issue a fake security advisor or security update and cause the firmware on your device to update itself to a compromised version? Mm-hmm. you know how do they deal with the trusted keys on their own network? And then a bonus question here, uh, does the vendor publish hashes of the packages they install on the appliance? So, in case of a forensic investigation, it's easy to verify that the attacker has not replaced some of the libraries that on the That would be app-
0: really nice if that if you could actually get that from the from mm-hmm. the vendor. That would be really nice. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Uh, so they say a vendor that takes your uh, their product quality and hence your data security seriously will be able to answer these questions and will be able to confidentially state that all third party Parsers in large fractions of their proprietary code run sandboxed or virtualized, and that the configuration of the machine has been readily, uh, reasonably locked down, and be willing to provide evidence of this. For example, a disk image or a virtual appliance, like you're saying, a demo, uh, along with permission for you to inspect it, because you know that last part can be uh, a big thing. Yeah.
0: Hmm, we both just dropped in the chat room because the chat room was asking for
1: it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I think all these are very good questions and I happen to know one vendor who answered a lot of those questions actually before I knew the guide. Otherwise, I would have literally just asked him these exact questions. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we interviewed a developer who has two uh, security appliances and he talks about how, you know, they use Capsicum to sandbox the processes. So literally, you know, for example, they have one part of the code where uh, it intercepts all Microsoft Remote Desktop uh, sessions, right? And it presents a login screen to the user and it doesn't actually make the connection to the server inside your network until they get past that fake login screen. Mm. Well, that fake login screen runs capsicumized so all it has is the connection to the user and a, a write append-only connection to a log file. And I think the the password or whatever. It doesn't have it doesn't actually have the ability to reach that Windows server or the appliance itself. Uh, All it has is the ability to receive stuff from the user, send stuff back to the user, and log. right? And then approve the connection or not based on its exit status. Uh, On top of being compromised so it's locked down like that, it also is limited. It only gets two seconds of CPU time. So if you did somehow compromise and make it do something else or Mm -hmm. try to brute force it or something, Mm -hmm. it would just... Be restricted, not allowed to do anything, because it it's not allowed more CPU time. That's pretty clever. That's a yeah, pretty good... lots of cool stuff. Yeah. But anyway, it's, it's definitely worth checking out the uh,
0: interview. Uh, yeah, that'd be episode 120 of the BSD Now program, which we normally would plug in a little bit, but now it seems like a natural time, so go grab it. Go get the HD version, right? I mean, Alan's got that nice 930E, right? Yep. And uh, he records locally. So, you get the full Jude experience. <laughs> you get night definition. Uh, all right, Alan, any other thoughts on that story?
1: Uh, no, that's it for that one.
0: All right, well, then I will take a moment and tell you about my mobile phone. I'm going to tell you about Ting. This is how I kind of figured out a little deal that I want to share with the world. Go to right now, techsnap.ting.com right now, won't you? So that way you support the TechSnap program and you get yourself a nice discount off your first Ting device and if you have a compatible and a Ting credit. But here is what I want to tell you Ting is mobile that makes sense. They just take your minutes. Your messages and your megabytes, and they add them all up, and whatever you pay, that's or whatever you use, that's what you pay. It's really pretty straightforward. And here's the brilliant part: it's six dollars a line, so you can have multiple devices. Maybe one's a phone and one's a tablet. Uh, you have a kid, or you have an employee, or you have a significant other that you'd like to give a phone to for the holidays. It's just going to be six dollars, and then the usage on top of that. What I find brilliant about this is when I was on the road trip, I used more, and so my Ting bill cost more. But when I'm just pretty Wi Fi savvy and do most of my downloads before I hit the road, my Ting bill is less. And what's brilliant about that is that means one month out of the year, maybe I'll pay slightly more. But 11 months out of the year, I'm paying like 40 bucks a month, 45 bucks a month for three smartphones. It's a really great deal. You can get started by going to techsnap.ting.com. They have an awesome dashboard, they have a CDMA and GSM network, so you can just kind of be a little savvy and pick where your phone's gonna go, what's gonna give you the best, and they have a brand new phone that just hit the Ting mark, the Ting ting store, and these are all unlocked. You get them, they're unlocked, you own them, $183, no contract, no early termination fee. For the LG Volt 2, which just hit the store today, a five inch display, tri-band LTE, it's got 5.1 on the Android up there, up in the lollipop biz, it's got an HD screen, quad-core Snapdragon processor, and then you don't have to worry about carriers getting in the way of your updates. It's just a really great phone with a really great price with no contract, and you just pay for what you use. Of course, they've got all the devices. You can find all the great devices, and they also sell just CDMA or GSM SIM cards. So there's a lot of good options for you. Start by going to techsnap.ting.com. Techsnap.ting.com. Go check them out. Try out their dashboard. It's pretty kick-ass. And I think you will agree if you try their savings calculator. Just click right there. Boop, 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 boop put your actual usage in there, and see how much you would save. About every two years, I save about $2,000 after over what I switched from, and uh, it's been pretty nice. Because as I started to get uh, a couple of people that, at Jupiter Broadcasting that I wanted to give phone lines to, it was really obvious how to do it. Just six more dollars, and we added another, another line. And it's, what's really great is a lot of people who join us, they'll bring a, a mobile device with them. They'll have a cell phone already because cell phones have been around for a while now, Mm -hmm. and Ting has CDMA and GSM networks, so it's really, really great. And if you go to techsnap.ting.com, if you bring a phone, you get $25 in service credit, and that's probably going to pay for more than your first month, especially if you can take advantage of their early termination relief program. And then, if you look into the referral programs you refer to somebody, well, you could probably go like three months without having to pay a cell bill. There is a way to do it. It's pretty cool. You just have to be a little savvy. That's why they picked our audience, techsnap.ting.com. Go over there and try them out, techsnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You still have that big Nexus 6 there, Mr. Jude? Oh, yes. How, how are you liking that big phone? Loving it. I am in the
1: market for a just new phone. today. just got my I, uh, second December security update.
0: I uh, I busticated my phone up super bad a while ago, and so I've been kind of, like, slowly shopping. And I'm, I'm kind of leaning, again, going with the Nexus, but I haven't made it in my
1: mind yet. Jim, uh, you can see here my prompt to download Android 6.0.1. Ooh, you going to do it? We should yeah. do it. Do it. I have 6.0.0 zero zero already. This is just as pretty as Yeah, who needs patches? Who needs patches? Well, it's kind of what we were talking about the other day, about you know, how it's like, well, I'm kind of... Busy the, doing been doing today, so I don't middle. have time yeah. to screw up my phone. <laughs> so I'm not going to install the security update until after the show's over later tonight when I'm not expecting any more calls. Yeah. yeah.
0: All right, Alan, well, our next story sort of fits uh, beautifully with our previous yeah, story, doesn't our it? Our whole little theme today. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it.
1: Uh, so yes, we just talked about uh, FireEye being doing all this cool security research, and then about security appliance, uh, questions you should ask, and so on. Mm-hmm. So now Google's Project Zero has done an audit of FireEye's security appliance. Oh, look at that. Hmm. Yeah, so FireEye sell uh, security appliances to enterprise and government customers. FireEye's flagship products are monitoring devices designed to be installed at the egress point of large networks. So basically, if you have um, a high-end managed switch, it has a feature where you can say, hey, you know, port number seven is actually uh, a mirror or monitor or right. span or whatever you want to call it, depending on which... Uh, company you bought the switch from, basically all the traffic that's going to go out a certain port, or it can actually be a couple of ports, will all have a second copy of all the bytes sent to a different port. Uh, part of the reason for this is, you know, I'm the network administrator. And I'm trying to debug like, some network issue. So all the network, that's, all the traffic that's going over there, also make a copy come to this port, which is my laptop, so I can run Wireshark and see what's going on, right? Uh, or stuff like that. In this case, you install this appliance on this monitor port, and it gets a copy of all traffic coming from the internet into your company, right? Or you can also have it going out as well. Uh, so we can inspect everything that everybody on the network is trying to do, or out to the internet anyway. Uh, so the FireEye device then watches all network traffic passively, monitoring common protocols like HTTP, FTP, SMTP, et cetera, for any transferred files. If a file transfer is detected, for example, an email attachment or you're downloading something from a website, the FireEye uh, appliance extracts the file and scans it for malware. If it detects the malware, it alerts the security team. It says, hey, somebody's sending malware to you, right? Although you can also put the device in an IPS or intrusion prevention system mode, Mm -hmm. where it actually kind of, instead of being on the side as a tap, it's in the middle of the flow so that it can block the traffic if it detects the malware. So depending which way you set it up, it's one of the, it's either it's a wiretap or it's physically inline filtering your internet connection. Right, okay. So for networks with deployed FireEye devices, a vulnerability that can be exploited via the passive monitoring interface uh, would be a nightmare scenario, right? So the device is sitting there as a tap and somehow you can send data uh, to a user in the network and uh, in the process exploit the monitoring device. Sure. Uh, this would mean an attacker would... Uh, only have to send an email to a user to gain access to a persistent network tap. The recipient, the user, wouldn't even have to have read the email or opened an attachment or anything. Just the fact that the email was sent and you know received by the mail server at the company or whatever uh, would be enough to compromise the device. Hmm. Right? And then if you compromise one of these devices, you're basically sitting on a wiretap for their entire network. Uh, especially some of these devices... Uh, Again, referring back to the BSD Now episode, uh, one of the appliances that the uh, Powell is talking about was one that can decrypt SSL traffic. Right. Yeah, I've, we, right? So we have uh, listeners
0: who work at companies that that happens uh, for all their web traffic and all their...
1: Right. Uh, there's quite a few, and a lot of those appliances are really bad at security. So Powell's company has yeah. built this one that's better at it. Okay. Uh, and, you know, it does things like... A lot of those other... So those appliances, basically what they do is... They intercept your request out, uh, and then make it on your behalf. And basically, to defeat the normal man-in-the-middle protection from uh, SSL, they will re-sign the certificate. Of, they'll re-encrypt all the data with a certificate that's only trusted by your company. Right. So the appliance has a private key for you know the my big enterprise CA, which gets installed on all the computers in the company, and so you don't get the SSL scary warning that you would normally get during a man-in-the-middle attack because you trust the man-in-the-middle in this case mm-hmm. because it's an appliance you installed or your IT department anyway. It's our big security uh, solution, Alan. Yeah, but some of those appliances don't actually consider whether you would have trusted this, the original certificate or not. So right, if the original certificate is self-signed or the original certificate is should throw an error because of a man-in-the-middle attack, some of these appliances will just sign that bogus certificate and make you trust it even though it shouldn't have been trusted. Right. Or won't uh, regenerate it properly and so will make an expired certificate look like it's new. Or you know, one that's uh, all kinds of other strange scenarios. Anyway, so uh, with Powell's device sitting in front of the FireEye device, it would intercept and decrypt even encrypted traffic. So now if you manage to compromise this FireEye device you would have not only access to, to view everything going back and forth across the network, you would get the decrypted view right. of all of it. Yeah, All the uh, SSL, TLS, you know, webs, HTTPS, the encrypted email, everything that the Lynx device could decrypt, you would be able to see if you can compromise the FireEye device. And it was, so, and it would be basically anything that goes through the operating
0: system, at, because the way that you, a lot of these devices work is you usually install something on the workstation so that way, the you know the the device and the works the workstation trusts the device on the network.
1: Right. So you you install it could be the everything. Root, you trust the root certificate on each client device, yeah. each phone, and each computer. It can be and every then, yeah, chat. The, yeah. So basically, this sits, you know, right behind the modem before the router or whatever, and sees every single byte of traffic that's going out to the internet. And you know, in the case of the links, can decrypt it, and then pass it off to the FireEye. <laughs> uh, so you know. This device basically has access to everything on your network. It basically has better than NSA level access because (laughs) you've trusted its certificate so we can decrypt everything. Yeah, they doesn't have have to break anything. It just does it. (laughs) So yes. Better than NSA level spying access to your whole network if they can compromise this FireEye device. Uh, So yeah, a network tap is one of the most privileged machines on the network with access to your employees' emails, their passwords, downloads, browser history, confidential attachments. Files, everything, even in this, you know, in the case of links, even encrypted things. So, in some uh, deployment configurations, the attacker could tamper with the traffic, right? If you have it installed as the IPS, where the traffic is being filtered through the device instead of just monitored by right, it, right? Sure. It means, you know, if it has the ability to block the traffic, it could also change it. So, it could inject a backdoor into a legitimate email. Hmm. Or, you know, some attachment that you're expecting and are supposed to open and is from a trusted person, I could replace the PDF with an infected one. Right? Or whatever. Yeah. So now I can compromise all the machines in your office by using your security device against you. Yeah. Ironic. Yep. And then uh, worse, because the FireEye device normally has a, a separate interface that goes off to the internet, so even when it's only in tap mode and can't monitor or can't change the traffic, it can still reach out to the internet to say, send a copy of all the data that's going back and forth out to the bad guy or to actually make this wormable to to make it spread between your offices or whatever. Uh, So, Google found such a flaw in the FireEye device. (laughs) Uh, I bet FireEye loved that. FireEye has issued a patch for the vulnerability and customers uh, who have not uh, updated should do so immediately to protect their infrastructure. Devices with uh, security content release uh, 427.334 and higher have the issue resolved. Uh, So they have a bunch of Q&A stuff on their website. I picked out two important ones here. Uh, So these are things that you might want to know if you were going to buy one of these devices. Sure. So Google says, how long did FireEye take to resolve the issue after it was reported by Google? FireEye responded very quickly, pushing out temporary mitigations to customers within hours of a report and resolving the issue completely within two days. All right. So all of a sudden that price tag seems a little more worth it. <laughs> yeah,
0: legitimately. And then
1: they mentioned, you know, have FireEye supported your security research? And the answer is yes. FireEye has been very cooperative. Uh, they worked with us closely and provided the test equipment support and uh, responded very quickly to any issues we reported. So it turns out FireEye actually gave Google the device and asked them to do it. Oh, I respect that a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, So Project Zero has been evaluating a FireEye NX7500 appliance and created a lab to generate sample traffic. The test environment consisted of a workstation with four network interfaces. Two of these network interfaces were connected to a hub so that uh, they would basically simulate a tap instead of having to buy a fancy network switch. A hub is basically a switch that doesn't have a brain. And so every packet that comes in on one port gets sent out every other port. Uh, whereas a switch is usually smart and says, oh, I know which port... Which, you know, I, want, I see the MAC address you're trying to talk to, I'm going to only send it out the port that that machine's on and it increases the speed of your network but makes mm-hmm. it harder to monitor. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Uh, so the FireEye passive monitoring interface called Pether 3 was connected to a third port on that hub. And basically that's how they cheated to make a mirror port off you know a $10 hub they got on eBay instead of paying $3,000 for a fancy switch. Uh they did so they could observe traffic being exchanged between the two interfaces on the test machine. This simulates, you know, an internet user receiving email or downloading something from the internet. And they go on to describe their whole lab setup and, you know, the, all the configuration of everything, so you could actually build this at your office if you have one of these or <laughs> if you have, say, a different brand of security appliance and sure. you want to run the same test. Yes, that that seems very mm-hmm. likely. So the main analysis uh, performed by the FireEye appliance are monitoring for known malicious traffic. So they have you know, a list of blacklisted networks they don't let through, uh, certain domain names that are associated with malware, snort rules, static analysis of files, like running it through an antivirus, the Yara rules, analysis scripts, and so on. And finally, tracing the execution of transfer files in uh, instrumented virtual machines. So it might actually fire up a virtual machine and run the code like the attached file, and see what it does. And if it does something bad, it'll block it, and otherwise it'll allow it. Mm-hmm. Uh, once an uh, execution trace has been performed, pattern matching against known bad uh, behaviors is performed. So they have uh, this malware input processor subsystem is responsible for the static analysis of files, invoking little helper programs and plugins to decode various file types. So this is where a lot of the open source stuff comes in. For example... Uh, there's an SWF helper file for checking Flash files, and it uses uh, FLASM to disassemble Flash files and figure out what they do. Clever. Or it uses P7-zip to uh, open up the DMG files to check you know, Mac OS disk images for problems. Or it uses PNG check to check uh, PNG files for malformed images or otherwise possibly malicious stuff that's trying to target PNG. Uh, there's also a JAR helper that is used to analyze captured Java archives, uh, which checks for signatures using Jar Signer, and then attempts to decompile the contents using an open-source Java decompiler called Jode. J o d e. Mm. The problem is that the Jode decompiler actually executes small bits of the Java code to try to deobfuscate it. Mm. Right. Oftentimes, a string in like Java, instead of just writing it out, they'll like do a function call to like base sixty-four encode or something to make it harder to figure out what's actually happening there. So running that little bit of the middle code there uh, will make it obvious what it's doing. So that's what this Jode thing does. Uh, But then Google's like, with some trial and error, we were actually able to construct a class that Jode would execute, and uh, when used it, would invoke java.lang.runtime.exec, which would allow us to execute arbitrary shell commands. This worked during our tests and we were able to execute commands just by transferring jars across the passively monitored interface. So if I just email you a jar and you don't even get it, uh, maybe it gets blocked by your mail server because who's going to email a .jar file, right? Mm-hmm. Or whatever. But just because it, that jar file transited your network, uh, it now infects the FireEye device and makes it run whatever command I want it to run. <laughs> uh, so say, um, as the FireEye ships with Netcat installed by default, uh, creating a back connect shell is as simple as specifying the command we want and the address of our control server. So because the FireEye has a separate port that goes out to the internet, uh, you know it may be behind a firewall, but usually you know firewalls allow stuff inside to connect out, but yeah. not outside to connect in. Yeah, yeah. So you just make the FireEye device call up your control server on a certain port and open a shell for you. And then now you have a shell, and you do whatever you want on the FireEye device. Uh, So we now have code execution as the user MIP or malware input processor. The MIP user is quite privileged and capable of accessing sensitive network data like IP addresses and stuff. However, uh, and then there's a giant chunk of redacted uh, stuff in the blocked uh, out uh, in the webpage. Yeah, Uh, there it is. There is a very simple privilege escalation to get root access. It's like, oh, so FireEye's requested additional time to prepare a fix for that privileged escalation Fair component enough. of the attack, yeah. uh, and so we don't have the details on that part yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, they go on to talk about in the Java, the, basically to exploit this, they custom constructed a jar in such a way that it's not something you could actually compile with real Java. They had to use a separate tool to make this malicious jar, mm. but they have the source code and everything for it. And basically, by just feeding this through the malware analyzer, it would run that Java code uh, and give you access to it. The very interesting thing is, I'm wondering how many other security appliances do the same thing with the Java jars. I suppose many of them might, if they're trying to figure out what what
0: a hidden Java thing could be.
1: Yeah. So it would be interesting to see, oh, it turns out like 40% of all security appliances do this. Yeah. Yeah. Although inspecting jars is slightly sophisticated, and maybe some of them, do, not some of the cheaper ones might not do it, but uh, it's nice that Google gave out the source code for their test jar so that all those vendors could actually try it mm. against their own device and maybe get a patch out for it uh, before somebody else figures out that their device is vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. And, but and yeah, they say uh, this allows exfiltration of confidential data, right? Because Basically, you sit there and monitor all emails that come in and send a copy of them back out to your control server. Uh, or tampering with traffic, right? If it's installed in that IPS mode, I could change, every, you know, every time you try to go to the real Google, I could send you a fake Google right. that ins- runs malware ads or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Allow lateral movement across the network. Turns out the FireWire device is allowed to, you know, call up other machines on our network and do whatever it wants. Uh, or make a self-propagating internet worm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then Google has a note at the bottom here if you would like to read more about our series of attacks against security products they've also published research into ESET, Kaspersky, Sophos Evast, and more uh, so there's links at the bottom of that Google doc there to pretty much all your favorite security vendors and what Google has found is wrong with their stuff Yeah, uh, small, the important small. lesson here is that you know no, nothing is perfect uh, but we see that some companies respond better Right. Yeah, uh, you know, FireEye seemed to be very quick to respond within case, hours. They
0: had some mitigation yeah. patches. That's pretty impressive. Yeah,
1: and actually, it solved the uh, the main part of the problem within two days, uh, which is very responsive. Uh, and in the roundup, I think we have a story about Microsoft uh, working on something for a couple of months and deciding, eh, we don't think we actually no want to fix that. No bugs. Uh, just just literally closing the bug <laughs> with won't fix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite a bit of different behaviors there. But anyway, I thought that was a cool story uh, just because how he's just like, oh, I could just email somebody a jar and take over their entire network even if they don't open the file. Well, Mr. Jude, now we all just became a little
0: more paranoid about that device we thought was going to make us more secure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Any other thoughts on that story? Uh, No. All right. Well, then I'll tell you about DigitalOcean, my go-to infrastructure on demand. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean and get a $10 credit. They've got a bunch of great rigs you can deploy in less than 55 seconds. They're dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. You can get started in less than 55 seconds, and pricing plans start at only $5. $5. You get 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. Terabyte! I love that. And they got data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany. Brand new one in Toronto. And they have an awesome interface to manage all of it. This is really what's made me feel like I could just go to them and deploy on demand. I mean, yeah, they have SSDs throughout, so everything's super fast. They got great connections. They have tier one data centers. But this interface is very simple yet extremely powerful. It's really a privilege to be able to have something like that, to manage something as complicated as virtual machines all over the world one-click deployment of applications, snapshots, backups, and then to make it all better, they have an incredible straightforward and simple API with lots of open source code already created for you to take advantage of right now. So you can get really productive really fast. Also, if there isn't something you can, cl- you can one- one-click deploy or create with their API or take advantage of code that already exists, they also have a bunch of killer tutorials. This is a nice practical one. How to upgrade PHP 7 on Ubuntu 14.04, really well done, very clearly written. Look at this. Look at this quality of documentation. And this is, this is, just, this is just a tip of the iceberg. There is a ton of good stuff over at DigitalOcean. They pay for it. They have professional editors. They pay community members up to $200 for some of the tutorials that are written. It's a really cool company. And you can use our promo code SnapOcean to try out that five-dollar rig two months for free. I've been using it for Minecraft, SyncThing, OwnCloud, BitTorrent Sync, FTP storage, a stun server. <laughs> I mean, uh, a NiceCast server at one point, or IceCast, using NiceCast to transmit to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, the list goes on and on, and it is always a ton of fun. Even just updating the packages on a DigitalOcean droplet is a lot of fun. Go to DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code SnapOcean. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the detection app program. And don't forget, Alan Jude recommends you deploy FreeBSD. I believe that's true. Sure. I believe that's true. Yeah. I believe that's true. Uh,
1: and we've had a tutorial on BSD now in the past about how to do open BSD, And we just got emailed today instructions on how to do net BSD. <laughs> Really? Yeah, somebody figured it out.
0: <laughs> I love it. I'm going to give, since we just we gave a plug to BSD now, I'm going to give a plug to episode 170 of Unfilter called Terragram, the last Unfilter of the year. Mr. Chase is back. And we covered some clips about U.S. officials talking about how we need to go after encryption in 2016. We got to solve this encryption problem. So, we spent some time talking about that in 170 of the Unfiltered Show, which I think some of you a might find great interesting. Great
1: response to that coming up in the roundup, too.
0: Okay, very good. There's your pluggy plug. Now, with the news all done, it's time for the Tech Snap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at Broadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or even better, starting a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Our first email comes in from Jacob, and Jacob has a raid repair gone wrong. So I've been listening since episode one, uh, and this is the show I recommend to all the IT folks who work for me, all 87 of them. The smart ones take the time to watch and listen. <laughs> Hopefully this request help, uh, The request for help won't embarrass me too much. Oh, look at him taking one uh, right there in front of the team. He says, I had a Lacy 28 gig drive set up as a RAID 1 off a of Mac with three 4 terabyte drives.
1: I think it, this is too big, as in it's, that's the name of the enclosure. Oh, I see. Yeah, it yeah. Has- Yeah. Basically, it's an enclosure with three four terabyte drives in it. Yeah, yeah. And He set them up so he actually has a three drive mirror, so he only gets four terabytes of storage, but on three copies of every block.
0: I saw. And he says uh, it didn't work out so well. The drive worked. uh, The drive the drive from work removed all the data uh, and new photos we put on it. Uh, It was a doomsday scenario. I I, uh, quarantined the problem by removing the other drive from the slot and put into a single and put in a single good drive with photos, so my wife could continue working. I called the Mac Tech support and was online for an hour. I got escalated twice and finally a technician in their enterprise area. One of the first things he told me was software RAID has been removed from the latest version of OS ten because they found it was unreliable. No one was willing to guarantee I could put a drive back in and get the setup uh, working the way I wanted. I've now secured a device that holds the third drive and have begun to manually back up the photos. All I need to make the redundancy automatic all I need to do is make redundancy go- automatic going forward. What should I use? Should I cron a bash script to copy it over? Should I use sync thing? In the house, I've got a MacBook Air and a T420 running uh, Ubuntu Mate, The Mac Mini uh, and a free NAS box using an old System76 Meerkat. Well, that's pretty cool. And three MacBook Pros. The T420 gets used as the MB server for a, a family car rides, uh, thanks to the Rover experience. That was inspiration. And log rides are much nicer now with the four kids. Please be mindful though, of a budget when proposing a solution. I think I already have the tools I need. I just need to configure uh, in the smartest way possible. So this happened after he decided to rotate the drives, he said.
1: Yeah, so the problem with doing a plan like this with something other than ZFS is because of the lack of the metadata, it can't know which drive has the newest data. Right? So normally how it should work is if you've got the three drives, and you pull out one, and you leave it at work, and you bring it back a month later, and when you put it in, uh, it should realize, oh, this drive is old, and it would overwrite everything on it by copying the files from the other two drives. Okay. But apparently, that's not what happened. Uh, when you put it in, it was like, oh, look, file system, and it doesn't have any of the files. Or mm-hmm,
0: whatever.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, the advantage to ZFS is instead of having to overwrite the entire drive with a copy of the first two, it would be able to say, oh, I see you're at transaction group X. I'm going to copy everything that's newer than that to the drive, but not everything, uh, which oftentimes can be faster. Especially if you say rotate once a week or something, um, but it really depends how it's set up. Yeah, with RAID one, you, they're not separate devices, and and the OS has no idea what's going on. Um, so yeah, you can do something like an R sync or sync thing or something, but yeah, I guess pretty messy, pretty quick. Uh, luckily now there is ZFS for OS ten, and you can do it that way. Uh, but I've only ever. Put this into, you, like, theoretically, I've never actually done the whole rotate one drive out of a three-deep mirror to create that kind of tape archive-looking thing. Uh, So, yeah, I don't know what to say. Um, Mm -hmm. ZFS has some extra support for that. It also has the ability what's called a split of a pool. So if you have a pool made up of mirrors of enough drives, you can say split, and it'll take one drive out of each VDEV and make a new pool, basically allows you to fork the entire pool, and so basically this, one drive from each VDAB, and you get a second completely. Here's separate what I'm pool. not.
0: Here's here's where I'm confused. Yeah, the story kind of. So why is he? Ha- so he tried with this let's see, two big drive, right? RAID one. Uh, then he so tre- so why not? Why are we? Why are we hanging? Why are we hanging toy hard drives off of a toy computer? Why why not just hook up big hard drives to the FreeNAS that he has on the Meerkat? Or what did he say it was? It was a Meerkat? Yeah. He's got a System76 Meerkat running FreeNAS. Hook it up to that. Don't yeah. even bother with the Mac at all. Put ZFS on that sucker and, and then st- and then just do a network drive to that thing. Is that not doable for some reason?
1: That would probably be a lot better. Um, and then you could ZFS replicate or something.
0: Yeah, because uh, I think where you're where you're, <coughs> go, where you're going in is don't use the Mac as a primary way to store files. Use the Mac as a primary way to access and interact with the files but don't use it as the primary storage server for the files right. because they have a joke file system from the 80s that they don't bother investing in, mm-hmm. and you can see how they they, they literally just they were rewrote. They close
1: to having ZFS and then got scared off by Oracle. Yeah, and they, and they did it. They literally. If they valid. had been a little bit faster and done it while Sun was still separate. and it, It's
0: more egregious 10 would be like with this, with right. this uh, El Capitan release they have now. They just did a drive-by rewrite of their entire disk management utility, and most of the functionality now is not even available in the application. You have to drop to the command line. It's just its a no-win scenario, and it is not an area. Yep. Apple is more interested in selling you PCI SSDs that, uh, that max out at a terabyte than they're worried about you managing multi-drive setups with Ray. This is mm-hmm. not where their focus is anymore, uh, and so, so I yeah, would just avoid would, that altogether. Say
1: what Chris is saying, take the mirrorcat, set it up as ZFS, then you can have, say, an external drive or something that you take to the office and you yeah. just ZFS send the data from your FreeNAS internal mirroring to this external drive or two drives or whatever you want to do and then take that with you. And when you're it back, you just do incremental ZFS replication to get caught up and, you know, it'd probably only take, you know, a couple hours, right? You can set it up run overnight and you can copy gigs and gigs of data, no problem, and then just take it to work with you again. Yeah. And, the, of
0: course, the Mac could do a, an SMB or NFS mount to uh, yep. the uh, FreeNAS rig.
1: All right, yeah. Scott. So best bet there definitely is uh, keep everything on the FreeNAS and use ZFS replication to an external drive oh. or a separate FreeNAS and problem solved. Absolutely.
0: Okay, now Scott writes in uh, with an ad blocking at the PFSense level question. He says, do you know of any recent how-to articles on ad blocking with PFSense for your home network? Thanks, and rock on. What
1: do you think, uh, Alan, about blocking? There's a couple different ways. Um, so a lot of the older type of advertising blocking was basically a giant blacklist, and those can often be fed into PFSense. Uh, part of the problem can be, you know, in your typical firewall, you're basically looking at layer three. So you base your decisions on like IP addresses and maybe port numbers. So you can't necessarily tell something is an ad just from that, right? If you want to block all of Google's ads, you can't just block all of Google because then you'll be like, oh, my internet doesn't work. Yeah, I can't access YouTube or... Google or Google Docs. right? And anything, a lot right? of people
0: will use like uh, Squid in combination with PFSense. And there's a mm-hmm. lot of Squid lists out there that are fairly dynamic yep. and updated. But you still have to manage it.
1: Mm-hmm. What would you recommend? Uh, and then so there's, uh, you have a link here to the oh, yeah, site where they have a PF blocker. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is specifically designed to you know, right. sign many IP address URL lists and it will you know, like I block and it will... And block.
0: also so. with this one, in the PFSense forums, there is several community posts on, like, um, uh, crowdsource lists that are being mm-hmm. fairly maintained. So that might be a way to go. Uh, the other way would be a little OpenDNS, you know, using OpenDNS as the DNS server for the PFSense box and doing it at the OpenDNS level as well. Do
1: they have uh, an ad-blocking thing? I know they have a malware-blocking thing, but I don't know about hmm.
0: ads. You know, I, I, w- I specifically know they have a malware. I'm not so sure about ads. But I would like to know, techsnap.reddit.com, if you guys have a
1: solution. That would be really cool. Okay. Well, somebody just linked one in the chat room, so I will drop that in the show notes.
0: Nice. Well. Yeah, that's using Squid. Yeah, that would be nice. Uh, all right. So uh,
1: The advantage of doing Squid basically is that you get um, the uh, – basically you're inspecting at layer 7, so it actually is looking at HTTP. And can make a decision about oh, this connection to Google is normal, and this connection to Google is not, and so on.
0: Now we have a question about how feasible it would be to set up a passwordless system, uh, with some expectations that I might need to set up computers for someone with Alzheimer's. I would like to give them a very effect, I uh, give them a solution that's very effective uh, for remembering passwords. As a result, I was wondering whether I could manage all passwords through keys and maybe even biometrics, something like that. Do you guys know where to get instructions to make a password manager in a system adapt to such a measure? Uh, or maybe is it even possible in the first place? Something he's kind of looking for is password managers that set up a master password from biometrics or texting a cell phone, logging through biometrics, keys, or other some sort of auto-login. Uh, I'm planning on to use only the, the only OS which are Libre open source, so it has to be something that would work with KDE, no mate as a desktop mm-hmm. environment, etc., uh, he says, I'm okay with the root password uh, in a post-it note inside the uh, computer case for service purposes, if that's the best we can get. Other questions, which models of biometric readers would people recommend and any potential pitfalls I should watch out for? This is an open thread on our subreddit too, so if anybody has anything that yeah. they have out in the audience, I would love to hear more. But what are your thoughts initially like with biometrics and that right? kind of stuff? So
1: I you know, played with biometrics way too many years ago now. I had the little uh, APC fingerprint scanner. <laughs> and it worked fairly well, but the one that killed it for me is that their software only worked with Internet Exploder, not with Firefox. Yikes! And so when I think Firefox 2.0 came out and I switched to Firefox, or maybe it was 1.6, I forget. Anyway, when I switched to Firefox, that was enough that I kind of stopped using it. Although uh, that was then followed by an episode of the Mythbusters where they took the specific fingerprint scanner I had and proved that you could beat it with Jell-O. <laughs> No, sorry. Mine was. Other ones were jello. Mine was the most complicated. They actually had to do like a PCB where they had my fingerprints, like something that actually had the ridges and stuff. Uh whereas uh, some of the worst ones they had, like the one that was just like a, a lock on a door, uh, they beat it by a photocopy of your fingerprint and then licking the piece of paper was enough to let it, make it let you through.
0: Oh no! Because
1: <laughs> it's like the, the paper didn't conduct electricity like your finger did, so it wouldn't work. But if you licked it, then it would. I don't imagine how bad taste licking a photocopy of a fingerprint is. Um, but yeah, a lot of the older biometric stuff was pretty jokey. Nowadays, I don't know. I would say Noah would probably say something about the YubiKey.
0: Yeah, Noah and the chat room are definitely mentioning the YubiKey. Uh, I would, I would say. Uh, the, I have seen many tutorials on integrating uh, different types of biometrics with Pam. So I guess just on a on a broad level, to answer some of your bigger questions, integrated it, you're not going to integrate it in so much, I would assume, with GNOME or yeah, KDE. So think,
1: um, on the local computer, you could probably get away with blank password on almost everything and just yeah, not yeah. do it. Yeah, because you know as long, as long as other people don't have physical access to the system, right? Yeah, you know, that's so, not that's not the 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 worry in this case. To get them kind but of, then it's just how do you get. How do you manage the master password for your LastPass or other yeah. password? Management?
0: Yeah, I know. Like on the phone, LastPass will support fingerprint reading. Uh, I don't know you your phone has time. it built in. Right? Yeah, uh, but so what? What? Uh, what he needs to focus on though is figuring out whatever biometric solution or password solution he's going to use, how it integrates in with Pam if he's using Linux, because yeah, that's what's going to really, authenticate the login for the desktop environments and stuff.
1: But you can you can just set up. Auto login and blank passwords, whatever right on the local system, yeah, I I wouldn't be that worried about that part. It just comes down to what's going to enter the master password into KeyPass or LastPass, and Yubi-key. or you know replacing those with the the biometric based. YubiKey kit.
0: really could be a big solution here. Although the big question is, how do you avoid them forgetting where they put the YubiKey? <laughs> so just leave it in the USB port, I suppose. And then you just take it out only on special occasions,
1: right? Uh, and that might be the best bet. Yeah. Um, I suppose the pitfall I was thinking of that. What's
0: other good? than it's there's no physical uh, security. Oh,
1: yeah. uh, the other one I saw that was mostly gimmicky. I think it was on ThinkGeek. Uh-huh. And I think it. I don't remember if it ever worked for Linux or if it was like one specific version that they got it to work for, and if you used anything else, you were on your own. But they had this thing. It was like a belt thing that went on your belt and it was if you were within like 5 oh, meters of yeah. your computer it unlocked yeah. it and if you, you know, walked away it auto locked it. They
0: still have that with apps on the phone. I don't know how reliable they are if they're for but they do have that.
1: If it's checking your location constantly to do that how much battery drain is that?
0: Well, the one I'm thinking no. of I think uses when you come in Bluetooth range it unlocks ah, and when you Bluetooth. leave Bluetooth range it locks.
1: That but makes more sense. That would just work for the desktop know, again. That's not
0: going to solve What you really need is like LastPass
1: and Yubikey. Yeah, that seems like uh, the best approach. But hopefully, someone from the chat room has an even better idea and puts yeah. it
0: in the subreddit. Yep, techsnap.reddit.com. Mr. E writes in with our last email of the day. Uh, he says, Greetings from Ecuador. Woohoo! Look at that. He says, Hello, Chris and Alan. I'm a big fan of your show. I'm a mechatronics engineer. Am I getting that right, Alan? Mechatronics? What is Mecha Mechatronics engineer. And I have a question. We have a set of devices sending TCP IP streams to a fixed public four IP4 address server. Due to maintenance issues, oh boy, don't I know that one, we would like to, (laughs) maintenance issues, we would like to be able to temporarily relay the stream of data to a different server without needing to change the fixed IP address on the devices. In a way, redirecting the data depending on which server is currently up. What would be the best way to do this? How could I address this issue if my servers are running on DigitalOcean? Thanks for your feedback and the wonderful show I've been listening for years.
1: Okay, so I forget what it's called on Linux. Uh, on BSD, we have what's called the CARP or the Common Address Redundancy Protocol. Oh, yeah, yeah. So your two servers would have their own IP addresses, maybe even internal ones or whatever. And then they basically would share that public IP address and they just communicate with each other. On And whichever one comes up first is the master, and the other one says there's a slave and keeps pinging the master. Right. What is that and for Linux? The ever, is it
0: CARP on Linux too?
1: No, it's called something else. Uh, Cisco calls it VRRP, the Virtual Address Redundancy uh-huh. Protocol.
0: Yeah, come on. Uh,
1: and or Virtual Router Redundancy Protocol, VRRP. On Linux, I think you have something, but I have no idea what it's called. Yeah. Uh, but they're they're probably something similar. Um, so that's an approach. Interestingly, he mentioned DigitalOcean. I was gonna uh, I was gonna say. Yeah. They in DigitalOcean recently just introduced a new feature called floating IPs. Uh, which is designed exactly for your situation. This is not part so of spa- ha- this.
0: is not part of the ad read. This is just- yeah, I know.
1: <laughs> this is literally a feature they have, uh, where you have that one IP address and you can just move it to a different uh, one of your VMs so that you can do maintenance. That's and awesome. uh, you know, on BSD now we've talked about oh, so I have this machine here and I want to upgrade the software on it. So what I'm going to do is take a snapshot of it, clone it, and install the update on the clone. And get it all set up. And once it's working, I just flip the IP address over to the, the clone right. and let some traffic at it. Make sure it works. Right. If something goes wrong, I can just flip back to the old one. If nothing does go wrong, I can just delete the old one because I don't need it anymore. And next time, repeat the same situation. Uh, so yeah. Um, the CARP or VRRP or floating IPs. And are, um, Amazon calls them elastic IPs. OVH calls them... Something else. I can't remember now. Uh, but yeah, there are a bunch of other providers, including DigitalOcean, that offer these uh, floating IP type thing, mm-hmm. Or, uh, yeah, a lot of routers can do it with VRRP. And uh, I know FreeBSD can, and uh, OpenBSD can do it with Karp. Uh And I'm, I imagine there's a Linux solution. I just don't know it. Sorry. Maybe one day we should do TechSnap from Ecuador. What do you think, Alan?
0: I say well, after we hit TechSnap three hundred, we do the whole thing from the road. We just go on a worldwide tour. I will find some sponsor to pay for it, and uh, we'll have to get a staff. I think you're going to need more than one. Well, yeah. Well, we'll also need a staff so that way you can continue to work and we continue show production. So both mm-hmm. of us will have to. But 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 it's going to be it's going to be a blitz, Alan. It's going to be a that this yes, podcast. The, the episode
1: thing. we record in the business class of a Dreamliner will be quite interesting.
0: Right. Yeah. I'm told that podcasting is making big bucks these days, so I'm sure our money is just. Right around the corner. I saw
1: some giant map of the podcast network, yeah. and my face was nodding, and I was disappointed.
0: You know, how many podcasts can say they've gone 245 weeks in a row without ever missing a beat? How many? Not many that I don't know of. Yeah, most
1: I of them, see. you know, most podcasts that start can't do five episodes ever, but... <laughs>
0: Yeah, there would be an interesting stat on that. Uh, All right, well, we need your feedback, because guess what? We just keep on going. Uh, So Mm -hmm. go over to uh, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact, and choose TechSnap from the dropdown, and then uh, you know send in your questions about security, about networking, about storage. No ZFS questions this week, so send in your questions about that. Although Mm -hmm. we did have a ZFS-related way to solve the problem. Uh, And, uh, of course, there's the subreddit.
1: No matter what your problem is, ZFS is the solution.
0: (laughs) And then, honestly, another great way to genuinely interact with us is to hang out in our live chat room over jblive.tv we do this show uh, on uh, thursdays we are normally 1 p.m pacific
1: which is uh 4 p.m eastern 2100
0: ugc yeah and uh i'm going to mention it right now we won't be live next week i'll try to remember to mention it at the end of the episode too but uh next week uh, we are uh, pre-recorded we're going to have two pre-recorded episodes alan's gone through and picked some of his favorite moments from TechSnap history and yep. uh we're going to feature those in two sort of back-to-back episodes that are, like, uh, condensed TechSnap goodness.
1: I'm actually really looking— be, at... I, I put fresh content in each one
0: as well. That is actually but true. Uh, There's going to be—actually, yeah.
1: For Christmas, it's uh, some of my favorite things from TechSnap ever. Yeah. And then for the one on New Year's Eve, it's a retrospective of all the shit that went down in 2015.
0: There you go. So uh, we should be two really good episodes, so that'll be at 246 and 247. It'll just be out at the uh, regular Thursday time. All right, yep. so now all that's left is the roundup after you go send us your feedback. So pause the show, go email your question in because I don't want you to forget it, and then hit play because guess what? It's time for the Tech Snap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup for stories just didn't quite fit at the top of the show because that was already a huge show. But there's some links we want you to be able to follow up on after the show, some things we're going to go through with you, and a lot of these links, well, maybe not this week, but often these links come from our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. And this uh, first one is a good follow-up to our uh, top story last week. Uh, you'll have to excuse me. Uh, shockwave flash has just crashed. and uh, <laughs> I'll go ahead and close that. Uh, so what's this about uh, Satoshi's uh, PGP keys being backdated? What the hell is that,
1: Alan? Uh, so uh, after Wired and Gizmodo did their little bit on uh, who they thought uh, Satoshi was, uh, motherboard.vice.com uh, did some checking in it and uh, looked at uh, somebody had taken uh, an archive of the MIT PGP server uh, to do some science on or something, and in their archive, the Satoshi keys weren't there, suggesting that the keys have oh. been added since then, which I think was twenty twelve or something. Uh, suggesting that the keys aren't as old as they look, because turns out you can if you just set your computer's clock to a date and create a key, the key will claim to be from that date, right? Um. The other evidence they had for it was looking at some of the deeper settings in the PGP key, like which hashing algorithm it used and which uh, things it allows. Um, And they noticed that some of these keys seem to have features that didn't exist in PGP at the time, or in GPG, at the time when the key was supposedly made. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Hmm. They do know that uh it's it's weird that the keys are um 3k they're they're uh, 3072 bit so they're not you know the 1024 the first key that people used to use but you remember after snowden everybody went to like 4096 keys mm-hmm. they're 3072 which is kind of a weird yes, He it it would be it's, it's it's Satoshi Nakamoto I mean if anybody's going to pick Well it. his first his very first key the one that we know is actually from him or whatever the one's that been used to sign things mm-hmm. Uh, previously, was just 2048-bit, or 1024-bit. Uh, okay, but that was because that's what we expected back then, you know, years and years ago. I think that original case is like 2008 or something. On this topic,
0: uh, uh, that we have also updates on uh, new clues that suggest that Craig Wright, the suspected Bitcoin creator, may have just been a hoaxer, which is kind of Right. So this is f-
1: actually coming from Wired, who wrote the original article. Yeah, This was uh, starting to
0: percolate last week when we were talking about this a little bit. Yeah, we're so like Wired
1: Wired points out that they said this could all be a hoax in their article, Um, but they talk about some of it and uh, some more stuff that they had gotten uh, and some other things that have came up. So, uh, for example, some of the evidence they had was apparently that uh, the Craig Wright guy owns two of the machines in the top 500 uh, supercomputer list. Uh, and when they talked to him, uh, one of them was apparently made by SGI. And SGI says, well, we never sold him one. Hmm. Like, you, I guess you could have bought it secondhand or something. So that's not necessarily definitive. Uh, but when they talk to the top 500 organizers that make the list, they don't uh, wouldn't say how they verify that someone actually has the machine they claim to to get on the list. <laughs> I um, never thought about that. Then uh, if he claims to have a, what is it, a PhD. Two PhDs, yeah, And yeah, his in, since-deleted what, in, LinkedIn uh the PhD was in what's it say there? Uh one
0: was from Charles Stewart University in uh, Bathurst, uh Australia, uh, yeah. in computer science.
1: Uh oh, right. and now they the tell PhD Forbes, in computer science. And when the university asked the university well, we never gave him a PhD, but he does have three master's degrees in network and system administration, uh, IT management, and information system security. Uh so it's not like he doesn't have any credentials, but maybe right. not the one he claimed. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. is interesting. Uh and then some of the 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 PGP evidence that motherboard yeah. found. Yeah, but they also talk about some other stuff they have, uh, where especially the the person that gave them the articles, or at least the, the hacker that was after Gizmodo, you know, made some accusations that Wired didn't have enough evidence, and so they didn't print because they're quite bad, apparently, and so they're pretty sure that that wouldn't isn't something that Craig Wright would have wrote about himself. Hmm. Right? Um, hmm, okay. And then, so there's, and then there's some talk about, you know, some of this stuff was, you know, the backdated blog posts, but those are, that that was done in like 2013. So somebody's been working on this hoax for two years. Does that make sense? And well, maybe, uh, you know, there's some talk about that. This could actually be somebody trying to blackmail Craig to get some of the bitcoins or something. And, uh, that's so. been a Reddit there's theory a going around. Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot going on here. Uh, but Motherboard and Wired have published more of what they have. Oh, there you go. Uh, but it seems like if you're the guy that has all the original documents and gives them to Wired and they don't seem to be chasing the story you want, the, the way you want it, then you just go find someone who will or just publicly post the documents. So. Uh, so, nice follow-up. Thank you, Alan.
0: Yeah. Uh, what about Google's proactive measures? Now that sounds like something you need to do so you don't get the flu. What's going on? <coughs>
1: So, when I first saw this, I was thinking, I was remembering back a couple of weeks where Google's like, uh, So, Symantec, you issued fake certificates for Google. That's mm-hmm. uh, not allowed. Uh, how about you double check? And Semantic's like, Oh, yeah, we checked. There was only like nine. It's not a big deal. And Google's like, Well, we hound 168 more. So, you know, what yeah. the hell? Yeah. And then, you know, they did an audit more. Oh, we found like 2,000. Anyway, it went on. But Google's like, uh, So, we want to see, you know, Uh, An audit report and uh, post-mortem telling us how this happened and how you didn't catch it the first time and why it took you three audits to find some of the certificates we found and so on. Or we're going to revoke your trust. And also, we're going to require that uh, certificate transparency where you tell us about every certificate you issue uh, by June of next year Mm. or we won't trust you at all. Um, So I thought it was related to that, but it turns out it's not. This is just something else that's happening in the meantime. Okay. The semantic things with Google is still happening, but that deadline is not until June. Uh, so Google will now actively distrust Symantec's Class 3 Public Primary Certificate Authority. Uh, this root CA certificate was issued back in 1996, although it doesn't expire until 2028, because you know in 1996 we thought that was fine. <laughs> um, it's being retired because it uses the SHA-1 hashing algorithm and... Uh, the CA slash browser forum dictates that after December of this year, you need to be using SHA-512, right? Um, so normally this wouldn't be a big deal They would it's a certificate or whatever. However, because you know this certificate's been in use since 1996 when this it was owned by uh, Verisign, uh, it's used for code signing and mm-hmm. all this other stuff I too. I bet, I bet. Uh, and so they don't want to just kill off the certificate entirely. So Samantha's like, we're not going to use this for you know SSL certificates anymore, but we're not going to kill it off completely, and we'll use it for other things. And Google's like, well, that doesn't mean it's going to stop you from issuing Google.com certificates with it. So uh, basically Google will blacklist the certificate and not trust it, uh, even though it'll still be valid in, say, your OS 10 uh, certificate store so that it, uh, apps signed uh, will still be, you know considered valid or whatever. Hmm, OK although. It kind of raises the question, it's like, well, you know, if we consider SHA-1 too weak because someone could find a hash collision and make a fake certificate that would let them sign some code, maybe we want to stop using it altogether. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, Google's post on it also has a link uh, to Symantec's post on it and uh, all the details. Uh, It'll be interesting to see if Firefox also pulls this certificate or what happens. Interesting is that uh, Symantec seems to be pretty cavalier about killing off the certificate. They're like, you know, we don't expect this to affect anybody. It's like, whatever. <laughs> um, they're like, if you have one of these certificates, you can just go into your management panel and reissue it. It's like, sure, but how many people are going to do that? Yeah. Or we're, are going to do that just before. following the news. And, yeah. Yeah. Or are going to do that before they start getting a bunch of users complaining that the certificate's not trusted anymore. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that one. So let's talk
0: about another vendor who makes their money off of people who think they need to secure their computer from boogeymen. Uh, Mac Keeper has a little bit of egg on their face. I guess this is like some sort of like antivirus program for the Mac. Uh, it's
1: more of like one of those clean up, make your computer faster programs that are usually uh, just the stuff stay- that like just like Cron Jobs already do, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, more along the lines of, oh, this is. You know, super sweeper. It makes yeah. your computer faster. And so it, what truck. happened? Their customer database
0: was compromised? So Looks it turns
1: like- out, uh, well, you know, they like to word it as their customer, comp- uh, customer database was compromised. Turns out they have a MongoDB for their database, and it's just totally open to the public, and anybody can go in and get no. Just completely exposed to the internet. You know, just pants around the ankles.
0: Wow, so not, not a compromise at all. A complete and total malpractice of yeah. configuration.
1: And on top of it all, the passwords in it are hashed with plain MD5 and yes Microsoft, Awesome. Instead of, you know, proper
0: and I'm shot, sure the type I've of users done. that bought that application are going to be the type of users that use different passwords for everything with password yeah. managers and
1: just from the screenshot there, it looked like there are like thirteen million unique users, but like a million of them were paying for a subscription at one point. Wow. So I don't know if there's any payment details in there as well. It's hard to say. So what was that like? So it was like a twenty one gigabyte database, something
0: like that. Yeah. Geez. Well, I guess it could be worse. It could be a 650 terabyte database. What is this?
1: Well, so digging back... uh, So a researcher had uh, looked at how bad the Mongo databases that were exposed to the internet were, because it's... Mongo database, the default configuration is a bit iffy. It's meant to be run on LAN, not on a public IP address. uh And so it just doesn't have security on by default. Good. Uh, So... The guy that, uh, after that MacKeeper story came out, the guy who had done some original research said, yeah, so I've gone through Shodan, the search engine for version strings or whatever, and uh, compiled a list of all the MongoDBs I could get access to on the entire internet. And it turns out it adds up to 650 terabytes <laughs> of Mongo databases that I can poke over Ooh, the internet.
0: Ooh, wow. I see, I see. So that's a, that's a bit of a So story. yeah,
1: it's uh, 35,000 completely no authentication MongoDB instances on the internet. Database is just, you know, legs spread wide open.
0: <laughs> now, everybody knows that credit card theft and uh, stealing identities, that's child cybersecurity cyber hacking. The real cyber thieves are now
1: stealing entire homes. Dun, dun, dun. Yep. Uh, get enough information, fake being the person and uh, sell the house out from underneath somebody. Maybe they're still living there, whatever. You sell the house. Uh, yeah. Get all the money and run. Yeah. And then, you know, the person who's living in the house is like, what the hell when somebody shows up trying to move in? Yeah. It's like, I bought this house. It's like, not from me. It didn't. I'm surprised this isn't more of a thing, actually. Well, it's becoming more of a thing. There's stories uh, in the US and UK of this happening. And so. You know uh, what? The other one I remember reminds me of, uh, I didn't think of it for the retrospective episode, but remember that story from Australia where they hijacked his cell phone to get the two-factor auth stuff to steal all the money from his mortgage account. Mm-hmm. You have one of those, like, um, mm-hmm. I forget what you kind of call the account, but basically it's a Authy. line right. of credit. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So instead of having a regular mortgage where you pay it every month, you have this super checking account yeah. where it's, like, for the entire value of your mortgage and, and you just pay it off as you can or whatever. Uh, hmm. Anyway.
0: Now, this next uh, round of stories feels like maybe it's a good companion to episode 170 of Unfilter, Why Governments <laughs> Lie About Encryption Backdoors.
1: Yeah. So this one is like, you know, we're all sitting here wondering, how stupid are the people in government that they don't realize that putting backdoors in encryption is a stupid idea? Well, this article postulates that they know that, but they just don't care because, you know, they want access to all the data. That would and seem that to be the case. They, they also are smart enough to realize that this is not going to help them catch any of the really bad terrorists, only well. Not the really bad terrorists, only the really bad terrorists. Right. I follow you. Not the terrorists that are evil, the terrorists that are bad at being terrorists. The terrorists
0: that are dumb. Yeah. Uh, oh, this is the page that crashed my flash. Our next story, Alan, the VTag hack. We have a, a 21-year-old man arrested from yes. the from the data breach, and it was yeah, their so little autoplayer. This autoplay happened here.
1: just recently, and uh, yeah, the BBC and uh, the International Business Times have coverage on uh, a 21-year-old man that was arrested in the UK in relation to that attack.
0: That story was awful. That was just awful.
1: All right, so tell me about
0: this, because I started seeing this covered today, and this seems like this might be a big story for the Linux Action Show, so I'd love to kind of get your take on it right now. Uh, A Grub 2 authentication problem that could
1: be out in the wild right now, or is out in the wild right now, isn't it? Right. So in Grub, you can configure basically a username and password thing so that people can't start your computer that aren't you or whatever. Uh or I think it can also be hooked up to disk encryption. I'm not sure I don't use grub. Um <laughs> but turns out uh if you at the username prompt hit backspace 28 times, uh it will just let you in.
0: I'm sorry. You're d- okay. So you mean uh, after I inject code into the yep. bootloader environment? No, 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 no. You uh. just
1: walk up to the machine at the username prompt and press backspace, 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 28 times, and then boom, you're in. Uh, and that's all it takes. Yep. So-, uh, so it's basically uh, integer underflow. So normally you go and you type in the password or the username, right? And it counts how many characters you've done. Every time you press a letter, it increases the counter by one. And when you hit backspace, it decreases it by one. And it uses that to know how long the username you typed is. Uh, And then it zeros out some memory uh, for everything, you know, basically the username can be up to 1,000 characters long or 1024. So it takes how much you typed and one for the null and then zeros out everything after that. Uh, And it turns out that if you give it a big negative value, you can go and erase some other bit of memory and then, you know. Everything just works. This is why
0: they're calling it Back to 28. That's clever. Yes. Okay, I love uh, it.
1: But they have some great breakdown on how it actually works, and you can uh, basically see it all there. And it's uh, it's been there since at least December 2009. Hey-oh, gotta love it. But they have uh, proof of concept code there. and So there could be a couple of machines that have this. How, so, And uh, they also show a patch for fixing it, which is uh, quite trivial. It's just adding checks to the two places where... We decrease the counter by one to make sure that the counter isn't already zero because you don't want it to ever be a negative number because the type of uh, integer they use to store it doesn't allow negative, so it overflows to being four billion. This is
0: why systemd needs to replace grub. Just uh, just need uh, systemd.
1: This is, this is why I wrote my own bootloader, uh, and it's currently <laughs> being reviewed and will be committed to FreeBSD beautiful, soon. Beautiful.
0: Beautiful. Wow, that's gorgeous. Alright, let's talk about this
1: Excel uh, flaw because everybody loves a good Excel zero day. Is this is
0: really a zero day? What's this?
1: Yes, so this is a zero day in Microsoft Excel having yeah. to do binary uh, worksheets and uh, use after free it could allow remote code execution. Uh, so they go on to talk about the vulnerability and they have a timeline here with Microsoft where, you know, the zero day initiative, which is uh, this open source thing run by Hewlett-Packard that lets people work on exploits like this. Uh, and back on the September 8th, they disclosed this to uh, Microsoft. And it uh, turns out that... Uh, so they went back and forth with Microsoft, and Microsoft did an initial fix for part of it. Uh, but then in the follow-up, they were just like...
0: Yeah, so uh, it looks like <laughs> the vendor... <laughs> so after they published, Microsoft is re-evaluating their reevaluating their stance. But since September 8th, they've just been getting sort of punted around. Oh yeah, we're looking into it, we're looking into it. They originally
1: disclosed the vulnerability to Microsoft, and Microsoft acknowledged it and gave it a case number the next day. And then they sent a question about, um, you know, what pop-ups did the user get during this? Uh, So then they replied that the user had no attempt to recover their data. And the vendor replied that, 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 you know, this bug is headed towards closure, and that the same issue as some other number that uh, had been reported, but it's not public yet, so it's just X'd out. And then uh, Zude Initiative notified the vendor that the case uh, still causes a problem. And the vendor replied that to look at it. And then the vendor replied that we take a defense-in-depth approach to solving this issue <laughs> and made code improvements that we believe would also mitigate this case. While this case still crashes, it does so only after the user has accepted the risk that it could cause a crash. As such, we will resolve this issue as won't fix. Mm. And... Uh, so then, after the 120 days that CDI gives vendors, they published uh, this on the 14th, and since then, on the 17th, Microsoft is now reevaluating their stance and will work on a fix for this. And this is why a lot of people advocate for a time limit on disclosures like this, uh, or just going public right away. Uh, I like the 90 to 120 days seems reasonable, uh, because otherwise, if this had never become public, Microsoft probably would never have fixed it. Right. But because after 120 days, we drew the line and pushed this through, now Microsoft, uh, you know, we created enough uproar that Microsoft might it, actually fix the it problem. It would appear
0: so. It would appear so. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Good one. All right. Let's talk about uh, OPSEC for honeypots. And I'm thinking about this. This is kind of an important thing. These are pretty interesting yeah. devices that if you don't configure right, would be pretty obvious to our honeypot to a sophisticated attacker.
1: Right, so the point of a honeypot is to catch the attacker and more importantly see what they're actually trying to do so you can make sure you can guard the rest of your machines against it. It's no good if they can trivially tell that it's a honeypot and just skip it. Uh, so basically they did some shodan searches and were able to basically find a bunch of the honeypots and, and write filters so that they could just do a search and find everything that's not a honeypot. And so they walked through some of the examples of how the honeypots give themselves away. Hmm. Uh, in the one, they like all the honeypots uh, that are pretending to be these uh, PLCs, the programmable logic controllers, the yeah. like SCADA industrial systems. Yeah, uh, all had the same serial number. Well, if you see 104 devices with the same serial number, they're probably honeypots, not real devices, right? Uh, or another one, they had the name, and it was like PLC name PG, and then raw code that's supposed to generate a random number, but wasn't being executed. So instead of a random number, it's, you know, random dot random integer between zero, one, or whatever. And it's like, well, that makes it pretty obvious Mm. this is a script pretending to be one of these things and not the actual thing. Mm.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, And a bunch of that nature. Uh, And then some of them are just like, the honey trap fake vulnerable FTPD. It's like, well, that kind of gives it away a little bit, doesn't it? Or in the other one, this one has is um, multiple version strings. So it's like it claims to be free FTPD and war FTPD at the same time so that, you know, when you're doing a scan and you search for a version number or whatever, it's going to ping yours no matter which one they're searching for. But it makes it pretty obvious that it's not either of those. It's a honey trap Mm. and a bunch of things like that. So
0: this is sort of like things they noticed when they looked into it. So things to watch
1: out for. So if you're going to implement something like this. Don't make these dumb mistakes that yeah. other people. Have. We'll have a link of that for and, that you know, in the roundup. Think about it a little bit. You know, it, the best way to do it is think like the attacker. And you know, if it's very easy for you to go through there and figure out which ones are fake and just not hit them, then the, those honeypots have failed to do what they're supposed to do, which is uh, catch people trying to mess with your Scada system. So you can figure out what you have to do to harden your Scada system.
0: Does it feel like we have a Joomla vulnerability almost every other week on this show now? I mean, like, what's uh, going on? It
1: turns out that when you make a bunch of hype about a vulnerability in an application, people go and look for other ones and find them. <laughs> so we got a critical zero kind of day, the point.
0: remote command execution vulnerability
1: in Yeah, Joomla. so this one's really bad. So it turns out if you uh, your browser sends a user agent string, right, which tells... A website, what browser you're using. Sure, yeah. And some websites use this to tell when you're on a phone to give you a different version of the website or right, whatever. Yep. They can often have your screen resolution in them so that the website can adapt itself. This website whatever. only works on Internet Explorer. Yeah. Uh, well it turns out when Joomla is processing that to try to do stuff, uh, if you inject some uh, an object, a PHP object or whatever, into your user agent string it'll just like execute that or run it into the database or whatever. Are you saying I and, can hack uh, a
0: Joomla site by changing my user agent string?
1: Yes. So if you uh, <laughs> tell your browser to pretend to be <laughs> – No, hold on. Hold on. Then, uh, this has got to be the worst I've the ever
0: heard. So I yeah, don't even ha- – I just changed my user agent. I could do that with any extension for any browser. Yeah,
1: you just, you just go into like about colon config in Firefox and find the box and type in an SQL statement or something and you win. Uh, but yeah, this one, you could just inject commands into Joomla and make them run them. and Love it. Terrible. Uh, luckily, they have uh, patches for this now, including patches for old unsupported versions, because it turns out a lot of people run old unsupported versions of Joomla and they really shouldn't. Uh, but luckily, they got patches anyway. Otherwise, the internet would be terrible.
0: Now, while we're talking about uh, remotely injecting stuff, how about this next one in the roundup? SMT, SMTP injection via recipient email's address.
1: Yes. So it turns out, <laughs> email. Something (laughs) we still haven't managed to get right. (laughs) I'm giving up, Alan. I'm giving up. So this one is basically uh, by injecting a bunch of crap into the recipient field, the person you're sending the email to, a lot of applications can end up sending spam. Mm. So if you have a web form on your website uh, where you let people put in their email address and you send them something based on it, like a sign up form and you send their confirmation email to them based on that, uh, they could fill out the form in such a way that Instead of sending that email, it would uh, send spam to some third person. So you can see here's a, a picture of what uh, a regular SMTP transaction looks like, and if you scroll down a little bit, you can see where if on the from uh, the to line, a little bit more, uh, you put something else, you can make all that happen all at once and send mm. some different message. So basically, if you include the person that's going to. Uh, the keyword data and then an entire message and the keyword quit, in the email address you can send an entire email uh, to some third person using somebody else's website. (laughs) And then it gets into even more complicated uh, versions of this because it turns out we allow silly things in the actual, the name part of the email address, the vanity part that's not even the email address Mm -hmm. to allow line breaks and stuff in there for people with long names or whatever and a bunch of crazy stuff. Uh, And it turns out we made it way too complicated. Mm. Great. And they show examples of like, there's this regular expression that's like eight lines full width long. Uh, It's like longer than your strongest password, this regular expression to check if your email address is valid, which I'm sure gets even more complicated every time we add, you know, dot Black Friday as a top level domain. Um, (laughs) But even that one can be, you can construct one of these that will match that. It's a perfectly legitimate email address. It just causes your email server to send spam instead.
0: So we, uh, we are often finding there's all kinds of different like trends. Uh, and one that we talked about last week was people taking over Steam accounts and then like emptying out their inventories. So we yep. have a follow-up story. Trading
1: away all their stuff or uh, scamming people
0: into trading you stuff and all these. This kind of reminds me of that. There's malware targeting Steam traders, which banks on the new escrow system.
1: Yeah, so because the amount of scamming and uh, I'm going to you know guess your password, log in, and trade all your stuff away, Steam is out of this escrow system where basically, unless you're like two-factor authenticated, Steam will like put a hold on the trade, so you lose the item and it Steam keeps it for like a day or two, so that you can claim that hey, I didn't do that, my account was hacked or whatever, and get your thing back before it's given away, um, and. Obviously, the bad guys figured this out. So instead of being like, oh, damn, Steam stopped us from scamming people, they just adapted the scam to look like the new escrow system. So they made a website that looks like the dialogue <laughs> in Steam when you're doing a trade. And when you click the final button, it prompts you to download escrow.exe, which, oh, so I've heard of that. That's the new Steam escrow system, right? And run it, and now you have malware. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, they, even gave it, they gave
0: job. the iXe a Steam icon, too. Look at yep. that. <laughs> oh, actually, when you, you go to is. details, too, uh, does it say yep. Valve Just in there?
1: Every, You can write whatever you want in all of that. Only uh, if you have the ones where you're actually checking the published by and looking for a code sign, do you actually get validation.
0: Interesting. It does say the original file name was 89.exe. <laughs> huh.
1: Somebody didn't strip out their metadata.
0: Yeah, yeah. So there you go. When you know, you know uh, what the good hacker always says: when you close the door, they often find a window.s All right, Alan, and our last link in the roundup yes. this week last is a tweet: song. how not to implement two factor
1: authentication. And so somebody was just browsing around on the internet and found uh, this IP address that's basically somebody's webcam.
0: That's a webcam shooting so, and so an RSA
1: camera that's pointed at one of those RSA ID tokens.
0: So you could just check your webcam to get your token so, so
1: when you Yeah, it's like, I might I, I can't be bothered to carry this thing around with me over there. Or two people need access to this. And we oh, can't yeah. set up two accounts right, because right. they cost extra or whatever. Right. Uh, so yeah, there's a webcam pointed at this secure ID token. And it gives you the number every couple of seconds. Brilliant. So if I'm the attacker, I go and I still use the name and password. I'm like, oh, I'm stymied by not having the secure ID that changes every 10 seconds. Oh, turns out if I just look at the webcam, there it is. Typey, 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 typey. Hopefully typey. the
0: delay isn't too significant.
1: It wouldn't be that bad. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. That brings us to the end of the roundup, which brings us to the end of this week's episode. No, TechSnap won't be live for the next couple of weeks because of the holidays, but we'll be live after that. We still have episodes released, so be sure you uh, are still subscribed to the feed or check the website. If you got any driving to do or good stuff, anything like that, it should new be a couple of good time. episodes. Yeah. And Alan made sure we have new stuff in each episode. That's going to be pretty cool, too. Uh, Yeah, Normally, though, we do the show at 1 p.m. Pacific, uh, which is, again, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Yeah, and jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar is where we convert it to your local time. jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact is where you go to email. And uh, any other shenanigans, uh, I guess also, you know, go check out the BSD Now show and Mm Unfilter 170. Those are a couple of episodes uh, this week that are related to some of the content we covered here this week. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap. Have a great holiday, and we'll see you right back here
1: next week.